This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. It was the age of anything can happen, he reminded himself. He had heard many people say that on TV and on the Outre video clips floating in cyberspace, which added a further new technology depth to his addiction. There were no rules anymore, and in the age of anything can happen, well, anything could happen. Old friends could become new enemies, and traditional enemies could be your new besties or even lovers. It was no longer possible to predict the weather or the likelihood of war or the outcome of elections. A woman might fall in love with a piglet, or a man start living with an owl. A beauty might fall asleep and, when kissed, wake up speaking a different language and in that new language reveal a completely altered character. A flood might drown your city. A tornado might carry your house to a faraway land where, upon landing, it would squash a witch. Criminals could become kings, and kings be unmasked as criminals. A man might discover that the woman that he lived with was his father's illegitimate child. A whole nation might jump off a cliff like swarming lemmings. Men who played president on TV could become presidents. The water might run out. A woman might bear a baby who was found to be a revenant god. Words could lose their meanings and acquire new ones. The world might end, as at least one prominent scientist-entrepreneur had begun repeatedly to predict, an evil scent would hang over the ending, and a TV star might miraculously return the love of a foolish old coot, giving him an unlikely romantic triumph which would redeem a long, small life, bestowing upon it at last the radiance of majesty. That was the unmistakable prose of author Salman Rushdie from his latest book, a modern take on Don Quixote titled Quixot, a novel. Just as Cervantes wrote Don Quixote to satirize the culture of his time, Rushdie takes the reader on a wild ride through a country on the verge of moral and spiritual collapse with the kind of storytelling magic that is the hallmark of Rushdie's work for over 40 years. Quixote is being hailed as one of the author's best novels, and it's been shortlisted for the Booker Prize for Fiction, which he won 38 years ago for his second novel, Midnight's Children. And today, I'm honored to welcome one of the greatest authors of our time on the show to discuss why Cervantes' classic is arguably the first postmodern novel and how it inspired him to write a book about a feeble-minded old man who embarks on a cross-country quest through Trump's America to win the hand of the woman he loves, a beautiful talk show host with a curiously similar name to the author himself. Salman Rushdie describes having to consume a massive amount of trash TV and pop culture to prepare for the book, how Keyshot addresses the most pressing issues of our time from opioids to immigration, and why the age of anything can happen may not necessarily be a good thing. Rushdie opens up about his early career as a stage actor, his secret longing to be a second-rate spy novelist, and why he finally decided to make a novelist a character in one of his stories. Then we talk about the moment when a writer finds his own voice, how he developed his signature style of magical realism, and how it manifests in his latest novel with everything from mastodons to talking crickets. Plus, we talk about the fatwa that was issued against him 30 years ago and what it was like to play that scary event for comedy in the latest season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Coming up with acclaimed author Salman Rushdie in just a moment. 
Sir Salman Rushdie is the author of many acclaimed novels, including Midnight's Children, The Satanic Verses, The Moor's Last Sigh, The Ground Beneath Her Feet, Two Years, Eight Months, and Twenty-Eight Nights, and The Golden House. His novel Midnight's Children won the Booker Prize for Literature, and it was judged the Booker of Bookers, the best novel to have won the Booker Prize in its first 25 years. Now his latest book has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize as well. It's called Keyshot, a novel. Salman Rushdie, it's such an honor to finally have you on the show. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Well, this novel is loosely based on Don Quixote in that, I guess, it it sort of uses Cervantes' novel as a springboard and then departs from there. And the first thing that we notice is, of course, that your hero is not named Don Quixote, but he's actually named after the French opera pronounced Keyshot. I guess it would have been too on the nose to have named your character Don Q, or what was the thinking behind that? Yeah, I just wanted a variation, mm-hmm. you know, just just to, to because the character is not an exact echo of, of of Cervantes' character, and and I mean it's not his real name; it's a pseudonym that he uses to write love right. letters to the to the, the the TV celebrity that he claims to have fallen in love with. <laughs> yeah, and I think that Keyshot certainly rolls off the tongue a little bit better, doesn't it? It sounds nicer, yeah. the French version. Yeah. I, I liked it. I mean, in the in the novel, it's because the the character likes the French opera, and so he he uses the French version of the name as his pseudonym. And I don't know if you'll lose respect for me when I tell you this, but I have to say, the first time that I read Don Quixote when I was a teenager, mm. I didn't really like it very much until I got to that second part of the book, which is where the characters start to comment on the fact that they're in a novel and yeah. it, it takes a very postmodern turn. That's where they finally won me. Well, I mean, I agree with you. I think the second the second book of Don Quixote is actually a lot better than the first. And strangely, he would never have written it if somebody else hadn't written a fake Don Quixote book two, <laughs> which annoyed him so much that he wrote his own one. And then, yeah, there's, there's this extraordinary thing that the characters know that they're in a fake book and a real book, and they have strong opinions on the books they're in. Yeah, for a 17th century novel, it's surprisingly meta. Amazing. You know, it got there 400 years before any of us. Cervantes said in his book that chivalric romances were rotting the brain, and in your book, uh, your character Keyshot is addle-brained from watching too much reality TV. Do you think The Bachelor is the modern equivalent of the syrupy chivalric romance? Well, the combination of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and The Kardashians mm-hmm. and the, you know, and all the competition shows. Um, yeah, and I, I just think, you know, he's a lonely man. He's a traveling salesman. And, and when we meet him, he's in Gallup, New Mexico, but his his beat is, is sort of around the, the, that area. Um, and he drives around in his Chevy Cruze, you know, selling pharmaceuticals. And he's lonely. You know, he's never married. He has no children. And he sits alone in motel rooms and he just falls into the television screen. And I think it's a thing that happens to people who watch too much television that sometimes they feel that they know the people on the other side of the screen. Mm-hmm. And and he has that feeling towards this this, this woman who is a talk show host um, and, and falls in love with her, although he doesn't know her and she would not know him from a hole in the ground. Um, and he decides that he will go questing across America to prove himself worthy of her hand. The novel does a wonderful job of addressing this blurring of the lines between reality and fiction or reality and entertainment that we're seeing these days. There are tens of millions of Americans who can probably attest to that because 
they elected a game show host president yep. because they couldn't distinguish reality from reality TV. They bought into the character of Donald Trump instead of assessing the real man. Yeah, well, you know, the words Donald Trump don't occur in the novel. Um, right. <laughs> because I just I just didn't want him in there, frankly. Um, <laughs> he's in too much of one's daily life anyway. Yeah. Um, but it's true that, that, uh, that there is this blurring um, between reality and fiction nowadays. Um, and it had a real argument about what is the truth. You know, is one man's truth is another man's fake news. Um, mm -hmm. And I wanted to get into the head of somebody who is, in a way, unable to distinguish between what is real and what is fairy tale and what is delusion. You know, and, uh, and yet at the same time, I wanted him to have a kind of sweetness, you know, Cervantes's Don Quixote is is quite melancholy. You know, he's known as the Knight of the Dolorous Countenance. True. He's a sad-faced dude, and and my character, I made him really the opposite. He's really cheerful. He uh, he has a big smile on his face, and he speaks in a kind of courtly, old-fashioned, charming way. And also, he's relentlessly optimistic and hopeful, which is why he thinks that this impossible dream of this beautiful, powerful woman on television is attainable because, as he says repeatedly, love will find a way. And I wanted somebody who was hopeful and optimistic and a dreamer and, and propelled that person out against the landscape of America. Right. And as part of that, and also sort of emblematic of the Trump phenomenon, you refer in this book to uh, this moment as the age of anything can happen, which is not necessarily a good thing, right? It sounds good. It's, but... Well, it's it's good and bad. Yeah. You know, it's good in that uh, in that it's one of the reasons when Quichotte decides and he calls it the age of anything can happen. It to him, it's optimistic because it means that you know this this woman could fall in love for this crazy with this crazy old coot. Um, but of course, it's also an age, and as you said, uh, you know, in which talk show hosts can become presidents. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, one of the things that happened in in the Ukraine recently was that a, an actor who played presidents on television ran for president and won. Right, right. Um, so, so really, you know, we live in this age in which it's as if the rules of the world mm -hmm. have 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 decayed, and we don't know what the new rules mm -hmm. are. And that, that applies to the weather and to elections and to almost anything you can think of. Anything can happen. And I love how you put that, the age of anything can happen, because it almost reminded me of Candide when the professor declares that this is the best of all possible worlds, and then the novel kind of proceeds to show the downside of that way of thinking. Yeah, the, uh, the, the best of all possible worlds by the end of Candide sounds like a pretty ironic statement. Right. Because <laughs> if, this, if that's the best, then what would, what would the worst be like? <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I, you know, actually, I'm, I'm really pleased that you should have thought about Voltaire because I do think that, that's a, that Candide is a book which is, in its tone of voice, um, related to what I've done mm -hmm. because its, its tone of voice is entirely comic. Right. You know, it, it presents itself completely as comedy but the but the the things it describes are in many ways tragic or catastrophic but it maintains its relentless comic tone all the time and i wanted to do that too
And like many of your books, this one is very much of the moment. It's packed with references to pop culture, including a lot of things that one might think would not be of particular interest to Salman Rushdie. Did you have to watch a lot of junk television and follow a lot of Instagram celebrities to prepare for this? I'm afraid I did, yes. (laughs) (laughs) How excruciating was that? And I mean, some some of the things that are in the book are actually bizarre things that I came across. I was actually in Germany when my last book came out. I was in Germany on a TV talk show, and one of the other guests was this young woman um, who had, what she had done was to take photographs of herself with giant carp standing in lakes wearing a string (laughs) bikini. And and that had got her like millions of followers on on social media. That was her her whole attainment in the world, you know, (laughs) was was being photographed with big fish in 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 a... in a skimpy bathing suit. And I thought, this is the world we live in. Yeah, well, you know, no one has stranger fetishes than the Germans, I think. (laughs) And speaking of social media, you've returned to Twitter to promote the book. You seem to have had a love-hate relationship with Twitter because for a while you were very active, and then I think about two or three years ago you stopped. I just stopped. Yeah. I just stopped. I just just thought, you know, I'm not enjoying this. No, really? And. And, and this is a completely short-term return. I mean, I basically agreed with my publishers that I would use it to say, just say, you know, I'll be in Dallas tonight, come along if you're around, you know, I'll be in Austin tomorrow. I mean, to be able to tell interested readers things about the, about the publication of the book and, and, uh, and communicate directly. You know, I mean, I'm fortunate in that I have, I mean, I don't have Kardashian-sized followings, but I have like one and a quarter million people, and it's nice wow. to be able to talk to that number of people directly. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. when you've got when you have news for them, you know. So, mm-hmm. so at the moment I have news for them, so I'm doing it. But the moment this book launch is over, I'm going to I think <laughs> retreat. Is again. it frustrating for a novelist to have to distill your thoughts down to 280 characters? Well, 280 is a lot easier than 140. Right. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's an improvement, which it used to be. Um, I mean, I, as I say, I don't use it. To think. I use it simply to give give information. Okay. Now, among other things, your book deals with the Indian diaspora and racism here in America. And you say something interesting in this book. You say that Indian Americans like yourself and like Keyshot have largely been excused from racism in America. Do you think it's been easier here than it has been, say, in the UK, where there's this whole history of British colonialism? Well, you know, until recently, that was true. I mean, I, you know, I've now lived in 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 America for just under twenty years, and and when I first came here, and I was talking to Indian Americans, you know, South Asian Americans, um, they would say things like this. They would say they felt almost embarrassed to be excused American racism, and they did say that it was much easier here than it would have than it was in the in the UK. And I think something shifted after 9-11, and, um, and then suddenly there was a greater degree of suspicion of like anybody with a brown skin, mm-hmm. and uh, somebody with a Sikh turban could be mistaken for an Islamic uh, turban wearer, you know. Um, and so suddenly Indian Americans, South Asian Americans began to feel that they, that, the, that they had become targets in a way that they hadn't felt before. Mm-hmm. And, and and but it's still I mean I think it's a it's an interesting middle ground to be not black and not white in America, 
And I wanted to look at that middle ground and see how it, see what, what, what it's like for people living in that way. I'm assuming, I don't know, but I'm assuming that this is not something that you've had much experience with in the U.S. because you're such a well-known figure and also you have this very civilized British accent. <laughs> Do you, yeah, in have the you US, encountered no. this? In the U.S., I'm happy to say no. Okay. But in the U.K., in the U.K. I did. And, some, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes really? when people write articles about one, about me, which are not friendly, uh, I can hear in the text that they would not write that way if I was um, ethnically white. Really? That there's, yeah, you could, you know, believe me, if you if you are not an ethnically white person, you get very skillful at hearing undertones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and sometimes I do hear those undertones. But no, I mean, I, I have very little to complain about. I have a very nice life in America. Yeah. You also addressed the opioid crisis in America in Keyshot, which couldn't be more timely right now with the recent judgment against Johnson & Johnson and OxyContin settling for hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, it's so strange. I've been, I've been looking at this thing for 10 years or so. Really? And, and only recently felt competent to write about it. And then just as the book comes out, the thing bursts into the news all over the place. So, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a coincidence. Mm-hmm. And um, but but it's uh, for me it was generated by a, a sort of personal sadness, which is that my youngest sister, fourteen years younger than myself, um, died suddenly twelve years ago at the age of forty-five, and it was quite clear that opioid overdoses were were the were the, were the cause of it, mm-hmm. and so that it became personal for me, you know, wow. and and I wanted to find out what's going on in this in this area in, in this field, and and the thing that. You know, in my novel, there's a corrupt um, pharmaceutical entrepreneur um, who's also, by the way, Indian American. So we have crooks as well. <laughs> <laughs> and this is based sort of loosely based on a real person, right? Because there was an Indian American pharmaceutical entrepreneur who was uh, selling meds uh, off label. Is that the term that they yeah. use? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and who's now gone to jail, I believe. Yeah. Thank uh, God. Yeah. No, that was a starting point for, I think, my character's kind of. Funnier, and I'm actually in a bizarre, horrible way more lovable <laughs> than the than the real guy. I mean, I'm actually very fond of my doctor smile, although he's a total crook. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but what 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 I found when I was digging into this subject is not just that there's the occasional the occasional person like that, but how relatively easy it it has been to get the medical profession or parts of the medical profession to play play along. That that by by, I mean offering what are essentially bribes, financial inducements to doctors, and I mean not huge financial inducements, not life changing money. You know, I mean really? twenty thousand dollars, twenty five thousand dollars. You know, you can't buy a yacht with that. Yeah. Um, uh, but for for modest sums of money, doctors seem to have been not all doctors, obviously some doctors seem to have been willing to go along with this project of prescribing these lethal things. Um, as they say, off-label, eh, for things they're not supposed to be used for. Yeah, it's surprising that the price of one's soul is actually pretty cheap. Apparently, really quite modestly priced, yeah. yes, <laughs> the, the human soul. Now, with your sister, you didn't learn this till after the fact, is that right? Yeah, that's wow. right. I mean, when, you know, when we looked in her bathroom cabinet, it was like a pharmacy in there. And, and then, you, then you feel, as the family, you know, we feel guilty. We, th- we should have known, we should have understood, mm-hmm. we should have realized. And and so you have that that sadness in you, you know, and and, and anger. Yeah. 
and and that that as I say drove my interest in this subject, mm-hmm. uh, and I just kept on digging into it until I felt I knew enough about it to write about it. Family comes up a lot in your books, and Keyshot, it's no exception. Uh, what aspect of familial relationships interested you in this particular book? Well, you know, I, I've always thought that family is very near the heart of 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 my of a lot of my writing, and. In this case, I was talking, I mean, you know, my sister and I lived in, in different countries. We were separated by oceans and continents. And it's it seems to me that that's not an uncommon thing now in this diasporic world, that, that families are, are spread across the world, and that can create distance and alienation. And then there can be real or imagined wrongs between in, within families which alienate them further from each other. And so I wanted to talk about that, the distance that can grow up between brothers and sisters, between fathers and sons, and, and what, if anything, can be done to, to mend that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the book, there are, there are two father-son relationships. There are two brother-sister relationships, and they're both to some degree damaged. And in both cases, they're, they're, the, the people concerned are seeing if they can come back close together, if they can, if they can forgive each other, if they can rekindle the family feeling. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the emotional heart of the book. You know, there's all this fun and games and playfulness in it, but I think the, 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 the emotional hit of the book, it lies in that area of, of, of damaged families and what can be done to heal them. Grudges and hurt feelings in families have come up before in your books. In particular, it makes me think of the whole scene around the vase in the Satanic yeah, verses. Yeah, yeah the the broke the broken vase that represents the friendship between two people, and which becomes the reason why they never talk to each other again mm. when it's broken. Yeah, I mean, I did that in that in the, in the Satanic verses that the story of the vase is a story that one of the, it's some somebody tells somebody else, and and what it does is it poses the question: Is there such a thing? as an unforgivable thing? Is, is there something that peop, somebody can do to you which, which you just simply cannot forgive? Or is forgiveness always in the end possible? You know? and, and, uh, and that's what happens in this, in this novel to, in a much more developed and worked out way, that you have people, blood relations, very intimate relations, who have been alienated from each other and they're trying to see if forgiveness is possible, if healing is possible. And, and the, the stories don't all go the same way. Some of them work, some of them don't. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with author Salman Rushdie when we come back in just a minute. Folks, it's no secret that I like to unwind after a long day with a good cigar. If you ask me, it's one of the simple pleasures in life. When I'm enjoying a cigar, somehow time stands still. I can hear myself think, let my mind wander, or just be in the moment. That's because smoking a good cigar is an experience. But like wine, it can be intimidating to get started. But not with Puro Trader. Puro Trader makes the global cigar marketplace easily accessible right from your laptop or mobile device. Puro Trader is like one of those travel sites that searches the entire web for the best deals, except instead of flights, you're searching for cigars. From everyday cigars for the casual smoker to the rarest of the rare sticks for the collector. And it's all in a supportive community setting where you can ask questions and read real reviews. Buying cigars and entering the community just got a whole lot easier with Puro Trader. Whether you're on the hunt for a rare, unique cigar or just looking to get started, 
Purotrader is the only destination you need to get educated, monitor market trends, and join the conversation. Check out Purotrader and use promo code NEWS for a chance to win a day at the Porsche Racing Experience in Los Angeles or Atlanta. That's Purotrader, P-U-R-O-T-R-A-D-E-R dot com, promo code NEWS. This episode is brought to you by Invite. You do all the right things to protect your health. You don't smoke, wear sunscreen, eat healthy meals, and see your doctor for checkups. Still, you could be at increased risk for cancer, because sometimes it's genetic. Take the next step to understand what's in your genes with Invitae, a genetic test that experts trust. Based on the results, you may be able to potentially lower your risk. Learn more by visiting Invitae.com. That's I-N-V-I-T-A-E dot com. And now, back to the show. And in the book, Keyshot has a son who he sort of imagines into being in, I think, what would be a couple of references to Pinocchio in the book. There's also a cricket who speaks yeah. Italian. Yep, <laughs> there is. No, no, I mean, I thought that there is a... There's, you know, the Keyshot story has elements of fable and fairy tale. There's mm-hmm. no question. You know, and and I mean, he it, he, as I say, he's this lonely man who's never had a, ch- a wife or a child, and he wishes up he wishes upon a star. He goes to he goes to watch a meteor shower and wishes for a child, and the child materializes in the passenger seat of his Chevy Cruze. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> and then the child who is who arrives as a teenager. He's not a baby. He arrives as a teenager. Right. With the at, with all the attitude of teenagers, um, and he is desperate to be a real, like Pinocchio, to, desperate to be a real live boy, and so their relationship. You know what happens if you suddenly acquire a teenage child out of the blue? Um, how do you how do you make a relationship with such a person? Mm-hmm. Um, all that I think is completely emotionally realistic. It's just the arrival of of the boy yeah. he calls Sancho, and another nod to Cervantes. But that become that's that uh, clearly he arrives by fantastic means. But after that, he's a you know he tries to be real. Now, why is magical realism your writing style of choice? Is that something that comes from your Indian background? I mean, Indians are <laughs> well known for having very fantastic plots and mysticism. I think I think it did start there. Yes, I mm-hmm. think it did start that that I grew up with this enormous storehouse of fantastic stories. You know, I mean, of which the Arabian Nights is just the most famous mm. one, but there, there, but there are others. So I grew up with this, this, this knowledge that that we know that carpets don't fly. You know, we know that if you rub a lamp, a genie doesn't come out of it. But we also know that it's really enjoyable when carpets do fly, you know, and when genies do come out of lamps. Um, and so, it from my earliest days, I, if you like, I understood the the beauty of fiction that is very fictional. Um, and I've tried to use that in, in my adult life, in my own writing as well. Now, Keyshot and Sancho go on a road trip across America, venturing really, I guess, into the heart of Trump country. What did you want to explore about the other America that lies between the coasts? Well, just that I wanted to get out of New York, you know. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay, that simple. <laughs> I mean, you know, my, my, my last novel, The Golden House, I guess ninety-five percent of it happens on Manhattan Island, right? You know, and 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 I remember when I finished it, telling myself, "Okay, now you have to leave town. You know, you, you can't just sit here forever." 
And and actually, initially, before I knew anything about this book, I actually conceived of an, a, a nonfiction project where I would get into a car and drive across America and, really? and just and just see see what happened. You know, just let whatever happened happen to me. Um, and I actually even talked to my son, who is a bit older than Sancho in the book. He, he was 20 then. He's 22 now. And I said, would you, would, would you like to go with me? Because I thought it might be interesting to have a young person's perspective as well as my own. Um, and he said he would, but then he said, are you going to drive? <laughs> and I said, I said, yeah, I'm going to drive. And he said, no, no, I don't think you're going to drive. <laughs> well, New Yorkers and, don't have a lot of driving experience. They, they don't make the best drivers, do they, I guess? <laughs> no, I guess, but I've been driving for 40 years. Oh, okay. You know? <laughs> and, and, uh, or more. And anyway, when I said to him that he could drive, that he would, then he was up for it. But so we actually did plan to do this as a real road trip. Really? And, wow. Yeah, and then and then just at a at a certain point, I thought, you know, no, I think I can do better by by making it up. I just felt my novelistic instincts took over. Interesting. Uh, but I mean, actually, I have, you know, in twenty years living in the states, I have traveled very widely across it. I've been to quite a few of the places that crop up in the book, and and some of them are. are fictionalized, but I've been to places like that. You know, for example, there is no town in Kansas called Beautiful. You know, <laughs> okay, uh, which is in the novel. Uh, yeah, Which is in the novel. Um, but there is a town quite like that. You know, There's no town in New Jersey called Beringer, where people turn into mastodons. Um, <laughs> but it's not, it's not very unlike Weehawken, which is in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, so so I, in the end, I thought I know enough. You know, I've actually got the material with which to write the book. And I'd rather allow my imagination to, f to fill in the blanks uh, than rely on happenstance, you know. But, but I mean, I still think I might still do the trip. I still have a desire to do the trip. Yeah. Well, you are doing the book tour, so I don't know. Yes, that exactly. Count. But you don't see anything on a book tour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you see the insides of studios. Yeah. Um, now, in addition to being influenced by various road books, I wonder, were you also influenced by road movies? Oh yeah, I mean Easy Rider. You know, mm. um, I I remember uh, seeing Easy Rider as a young man um, and being enormously influenced by it, and, um, and of course by the extraordinary music track of Easy Rider, which is one of the great soundtracks in the movies. And I think you know the the, the road is such an enormous uh, image in American culture, whether it's movies or books uh, or poems. Uh, or, uh, or almost anything, really. Or you know, it, Dorothy goes down the yellow brick road. You know, the road the road is a very basic metaphor um, of American life, and so that was that felt natural to me. And also, the thing that can happen in an adventure that travels down a road is that it can change all the time. You can have different kinds of adventure in different places, and so the book can, in a way, become different kinds of book as it travels along. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's a bit of this book that you could call um, a spy novel. There's a bit of the book that you could you could say is science fiction. Um, uh, there's a bit of it that you could call fantasy. You know, and I wanted to be able to use all these different methods to describe different aspects of the world that I was bringing into being. 
It's interesting because you have the author as a character in this story, and I think you describe him as the author of third-rate spy novels. Yeah, um, I think I always wanted to be a second-rate spy novelist. Second-rate, okay. <laughs> That's a little I better. Think, yeah, let's be polite, second-rate. <laughs> um, it's interesting because the novel works on these two levels. There's the story of Keyshot's journey and the author who is making it all up, and gradually we get to see these two stories come together. Is that yes. the first time that you've written from the perspective of an author? Yes, I've never done it. I've, 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 and actually, I've always slightly disapproved of it. Oh, really? Um, you know, to, to write a book about somebody writing a book about somebody. You know, <laughs> uh, I've, I've always thought, no, just no need to do that. And, and then I found myself doing it, and I kind of stopped myself and thought, am I really going to do this, or am I going to take it out? And... And in the end, I thought, okay, I'm just going to try it and see see what see what it gives me, and I reserved the right to remove that whole storyline from the book. But then, in the end, I found that these two storylines about the creator and the creation were, in a way, talking to each other, and they were illuminating one another. And in the end, I became interested in it, and I thought, yeah, this actually this actually seems to work to me. So I I left it in. But it was always before this, it was something I I never tried to do. I also have to mention that the object of Keyshot's affection or obsession is a TV celebrity who is named Salma R. One yes, letter removed yes, from your own name. One. <laughs> well, that's my little private joke. And 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 what it, the private joke is this: that one of the things that happens, you know, these days to writers is people are always looking for who's the autobiographical mm-hmm. character in the book. And right. So I thought, well, I'll I'll give my name to first of all a woman. Um, secondly, somebody who suffers from bipolar disorder and has to have electroconvulsive therapy <laughs> and is then an addict, an opioid addict. That sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was wondering if there's uh, something that we can read into that, uh, maybe narcissism, uh, making yourself the object of your character's desire. or no, only she, In a way, she's like designed to be the opposite of me. Right. You know? Okay. Um, <laughs> um, and... Uh, I mean, I just did I, the name. I mean, I could have called her anything, but I did uh, that. I did that just as a as a way of having some fun. <laughs> yeah, you must run into that a lot. Readers looking for the autobiographical elements in your books. Do you do that frequently? Do you do you like to put in some little mischievous tidbits in there, just some breadcrumbs, just to mess with well, them a little? It, it's 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 getting to be that way. I mean, it, it, you know, it used to be. I mean, obviously, sometimes, I mean, quite frequently, writers will use deeply personal experience to write out of, you know, mm-hmm. and, and like in my earlier uh, books, so for example, in Midnight's Children, the, the main character of that book um, is, lives in, the, lives in the house I grew up in, goes to the school I went to, has friends who are composite versions of people who were my school friends, and who is of my generation and my age, you know, so there I was deliberately creating somebody, not exactly me, but close to me. You know, and I think that's, and I wouldn't uh, wouldn't attempt to conceal that. But nowadays, I feel there's there's a, a growing autobiographical obsession that people read fiction as if it's a disguised autobiography, and the author's in there somewhere. If you could just ferret him out, you know, <laughs> and and that makes me not want to play that game. As an aside, I just want to point out that I absolutely love your long Dickensian chapter titles. <laughs> like, there's one here, Keyshot, an old man falls in love, embarks on a quest, and becomes a father. Yeah. And that's just, that's just 10 pages. Yeah. <laughs> Were you heavily influenced by Dickens? Yes, I love Dickens. I've always admired him and tried to learn from him because 
one of the things I like about him is that he's is that he's funny. He's very funny, mm -hmm. uh, but also that he is able to write about such an enormous breadth of society. You know, he can write about archbishops and pickpockets. He can write about like seems like any level of society. He's able to bring to life, and I thought you know that really is something to learn from. Don't just stick in your own little social media and write about people like yourself, but get out there, find out about people, you know, and, and, and uh, write about people not like yourself, mm -hmm. people who don't think the way you think, who haven't had a life like you've had. And, and that's, that, that gives you the world if you can do that. You know, get out of your room, go and find things out. Absolutely. I've always thought there's a bit of writing fiction which is not that unlike being a journalist, not that unlike reportage. And the thing about Dickens is he's a great reporter. He goes out, he finds out about abuses of poor children in schools in the north of England. And, and he finds out what it's like to be in a debtor's prison. And, and then he creates characters which make, the, those, which make those worlds immortal for us all. Mm -hmm. you know? And I thought, yeah, try and do that. Do something like that. Learn from him. Yeah. Uh, there's another bit that I absolutely love in here, and you actually referenced it a moment ago, which is in the book where uh, some intolerant Americans, uh, I don't want to call them Trump voters, but they turn into mastodons. And I was wondering if that's a nod to Ionesco's play yes. Rhinoceros. Very much so. I mean, when I was at college at Cambridge, uh, and I was 20 years, 19, 20 years old, I, was ac I acted in a, in a college production Really? Of, of rhinoceros, yeah. I was one of the characters who had to turn into a rhinoceros. <laughs> Were you I, any I good? I had to run on, <laughs> run on and off stage, and each time I came back on stage, I would have a bit more rhinoceros on me. <laughs> you know? and, and I remember being, you know, I was very young. I was, I think, not even 20. And I remember being puzzled by the play and not understanding, you know, what's this about, I, I found myself asking. And, the, and the, the director of the play sort of patiently explained to me that this is a metaphor of fascism, a metaphor of Nazism for UNESCO. Mm -hmm. and, and what he was trying to say is there are times in, 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 in society when, when the people who live next door to you, the people whose children play with your children, uh, that suddenly, almost overnight, they can become strangers to you. They can become alien. They can become hostile. You can't talk to them anymore. Um, and they can, at the extreme form, they can they can feel monstrous to you. And I thought, you know, maybe we're living in a time like that, where, where as as this society polarizes, where literally people who've known each other, who've got along perfectly well, um, communities in which there has not been dissension, you know, suddenly there's mistrust. People look at each other strangely. They don't know how to talk to each other. And, you know, people believe that other people are turning into monsters. And so I thought, okay, well, UNESCO can help me out here, you know. Um, and I thought I can't do rhinoceroses because he's already done rhinoceroses. Um, so, so, I, so I used mastodons. And I didn't realize that you had this budding career as an actor before you went into writing. Were you any good? I, I'm afraid only in my own opinion. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, it was the only other thing I ever wanted to do. You know, when, uh, when I was at university, I had spent much more of my time involved with student theater than with, for example, student journalism or student magazines. Um, and I really thought I might be an actor. And then fortunately, was smart enough to understand that that might not be the best move. <laughs> but it, it still feels to me like yeah. a kind of unscratched itch. You know? um, <laughs> 
Well, I will say this. I, I thought that you were fantastic in Curb Your Enthusiasm. Well, thank you. And, and I love that Larry David approached you about doing a whole season about <laughs> kind of your story and the whole fatwa. How did that work well, out? It, I mean, does a novelist work well with that improvisational style that he uses? Well, you know, he, he I didn't know him very well. I'd met him like a couple of times. And he called up sort of more or less out of the blue and, and said, look, we've had this idea and do you want to be in it? And I said, well, could I see a script? And he said, well, that's difficult because it's, it's all improvisation, so there's, there's no script. <laughs> right. And, and so I said, oh, well, can you tell me about it? And, and he talked about it on the phone for a few minutes. And my first feeling when I realized that he wanted to do a, a season about him wanting to make a musical about my life that would be called Fatwa! Exclamation <laughs> mark. <laughs> my first thought was, is this really funny? You know, and and then I thought that yeah, there was a point in my life where it would not have been funny, where it would where, where I would not have wished to collaborate sure. with it. But the but if one has happily reached a point at what at which one can make fun of it, then I think that's good. You know, and and so I said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And and then I had the most enjoyable two days I can I can recall hanging out with these brilliant <laughs> comedians. Um, and tr and trying not to be the only person who wasn't any good. <laughs> well, I have to ask then, is there really such a thing as fatwa sex? No, I think that's just their idea. <laughs> okay. They, they planted that. Oh. I thought, if only. <laughs> <laughs> well, this year is the 30th anniversary of the Ayatollah Khomeini's issuing the fatwa against you. How did you celebrate? It's, I, I, it's, not, it's Valentine's Day, you know. I have better, better things to do on Valentine's okay. Day. <laughs> Do you still travel with security or look behind your back? No, no, that it, that all went away 20 years ago. So, I mean, it, it, there was a period of about nine, nine and a half years, which were, which were very serious, you know, and which required a lot of precautions. Um, but it's really been over for more than two decades. I mean, I've lived, okay. in, I've lived in America for 20 years and I, I don't require any kind okay. of security. But the Fontwa still exists, right? Well, it, you know, Theoretically, but in practical, <laughs> practically, it's, it's right. nobody's paying any attention to it. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, I mean, it was a horrible thing in the moment, but do you think that you maybe owe the late Ayatollah Khomeini a little bit of a debt of thanks? Because there's no denying that there are probably thousands, maybe millions of people who may not have known or cared that you had won the Booker Prize, but they probably opened a Salman Rushdie book just because they had heard that you were the Fatwa guy. Yeah, I think, you know, if, if that was a public relations stunt, I think he went a little too far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what it did do is it gave me access to worlds I would not have entered otherwise. You know, I got mm -hmm. I got to meet an enormous number of uh, of politicians and statesmen in different countries, and so now I mean, in in one of my novels, um, Shalimar the Clown, I had to invent the character of a very powerful diplomat statesman, and and I was actually helped to do that by the fact that I had over those years met so many of them. You know, that, that I could. I could work, I could create one that felt to me convincing, and and actually the the spy material that's in that's in Kishat, um has some of its origin in the fact that in those years I met a lot of spies, you know, I, I mean I oh really both British and American spies, and I've actually been half a dozen times into that James Bond building on the River Thames. Uh, Interesting. And, yeah, and I mean I can tell you, for example, that the head of MI6 is not called M. No. Um, but is called C. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so you know, the, because of that experience, I had I had often thought, you know, I should write a spy novel, and 
And instead, it turned into my writing this second-rate spy novelist writing a spy novel. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you're still not welcome in Iran, but you're also living in the America that elected Donald Trump. You have Boris Johnson determined to just drive the UK out of the EU, deal or no deal, and threatened to suspend parliament. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Modi in India, who has Mm -hmm. authoritarian leanings and is not particularly a fan of yours. Do you feel a little bit like you're a man without a country right now? No, I just think that what is happening is that these three countries that I've spent my life caring about and writing about are going through, um, you know, moments that I that I really am very worried about. And, and it seems to me that they're not exactly the same. You know, there are different circumstances in the three places. But the thing that I think they all have in common is that in each case, there's a, a leader trying to um, to foist upon people a false past, you know, a, a, the, the dream of a golden age to which mm-hmm. if we just did what he wanted, we can return. You know, so, so Narendra Modi in India has, you know, proposes this idea of a Hindu golden age in which the country was in much better shape, which was ruined by the arrival of the Muslim conquerors and rulers. Um, you know, the Brexit people are proposing the idea of a British golden age, an English golden age, actually, because it is really English. It's not Scottish or Irish. Um, But again, if only one could get rid of all these inconvenient foreigners, um, we can have that golden age again. Mm. And, you know, here we have the red hats. And, And I always want to ask exactly when was it that America was great, that to what's the moment to which we should aspire? Exactly. Um, was it when there was still slavery? Was it then? Um, was it before women had the vote? Was it then? Was it before the civil rights movement? Was that it? Exactly where is it located, the golden age? Mm. You know, um, and of course, the point is about golden age is that they're all fairy tales. You know, but, but they're fairy tales that are very expertly sold. And, and that's the thing that's happening in all three countries, that, that people are being asked to buy into a fairy tale. Yeah. And it comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, about living in an age in which it's hard to tell truth from fiction. Well, Keychot gives so many nods to your favorite authors. We mentioned Dickens, Cervantes, Ionesco. Do you still feel like your work is influenced by other writers in the way that it might have been earlier in your career? At what point does the writer realize that they have their own voice? When does James Joyce become Joyce or Hemingway become Hemingway? Rushdie become Rushdie? Well, I think there is a moment and different writers, you know, some people get there very young and some people find their way to it. But I think there, I mean, the subject of influence is very important because every writer is influenced by other writers. There's no such thing as a writer who without, without influences. But I think there is a point where you you feel your own voice. You feel your own your own sentences coming out of you, not 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 versions of other people's sentences. And after that, influence isn't exactly the same thing anymore. That you don't feel that I'm trying to be like somebody. I'm I mean I'm trying to be like me, but I can recognize that, that sometimes leads me to towards the territory or the manner of somebody else. But it's not, it's not, it's sort of, I've always compared it to, you know, when you're launching a rocket ship, you need, you need a whole apparatus to launch the rocket ship. But mm-hmm. once the, once the, once the rocket's up in space, you know, you don't need that apparatus anymore. It's, it's just going on its journey. And I think of, of influence for literature as being like that launch apparatus. It gets you okay. up in the air. Yeah. But, but once you're up there, you're on your own. 
Well, before we go, I'm working on starting my first book myself. Ooh. And notice that I didn't say starting, but working on starting. Uh, <laughs> do you have a secret to breaking through writer's block? Well, I just I just don't believe in it. Really? I, I, I just think, you know, sit down and do your work. <laughs> it's uh, that easy. Well, I've just, uh, you know, I, I started out before I was able to earn a living as a writer you know, I wrote um, advertising copy. I wrote bits of journalism. I wrote, you know, I wrote kinds of writing for which there were deadlines. You had to be good by two o'clock on Thursday because that's when the client was coming in. And it just taught me this is a job. It's a job like any other job. And get up in the morning, sit at your desk, do your work. And that's always been my attitude. And um, I, I mean, it's what I tell students as well. I think, you know, just get over yourself. Just do it. <laughs> You're that disciplined. That's impressive. Well, it's but the, the discipline has grown with the years. I mean, I, yeah. I wasn't exactly like this when I was much younger. Well, once more, Salman Rushdie's new book is called Keyshot, a novel, and it's just wonderful. You have to read it. Uh, Salman, it was such a pleasure. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again to Salman Rushdie for joining me on the podcast. Order his brilliant novel, Keyshot, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Follow him on Twitter at, at Salman Rushdie and visit SalmanRushdie.com for a list of his upcoming public appearances and more interesting stuff. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickassNewsPod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit KickassNews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickassNews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis and thanks for listening to Kickass News.